Coming to you from the AT&T Podcast Studio, this is Long Story Short. I'm Ted Struley, the Executive Director at Oklahoma Watch. We're a statewide nonprofit news organization that specializes in investigative reporting. You're listening to our weekly podcast, which lets you hear directly from our journalists as they provide deeper insight into their recently published stories. Keaton Ross covers democracy for Oklahoma Watch. In his latest story, Keaton examined why Oklahoma is backing away from joining a multi-state effort to identify election fraud and encourage voter registration. Keaton, uh, could you explain how this interstate organization works and why other states have found it beneficial to join? Sure. So the organization is called the Electronic Registry Information Center. Basically, it's a cooperative of states that share uh, their voter roles in motor vehicle data. Uh, you know, this is data that only states have. It's, there's no kind of federal system for it. Um, and then this organization takes that, matches it with social security death records. Um, and it could be really useful to see if someone has moved out of state, uh, as well as identifying people who have a driver's license uh, but aren't registered to vote. Uh, so there's an effort to notify those folks. Uh, so that that organization's been around since 2012. And when did Oklahoma first consider joining? They first considered joining uh, in 2021. There was a bill authorizing uh, the state to join this organization, uh, cleared the House and Senate, was signed into the governor uh, weeks before the the end of session. Um, so that, that effort started in 2021, um, and it seemed to have uh, pretty widespread support, especially among uh, Republicans. And what's changed in the past two years that's caused lawmakers to rethink joining? So there's been a pretty steady uh, misinformation campaign against this organization. Uh, started in early 2022 and uh, sort of accelerated as, as we got into uh the months and weeks leading up to to the beginning of 2023, when when a lot of states started their legislative session, um, basically making some unfounded claims about uh, how the organization is funded, uh, where that data goes, um, and that in turn prompted uh, a, a lot of Republican states to seek uh, certain reforms or changes to how the organization is run as that information um, was started circulating. Um, so that, that's been a change that, that's developed only since kind of the beginning of 2022. Well, several Republican-led states have uh, left the Electronic Registration Information Center recently, right? That's right. Uh, states like Florida, Iowa, Ohio uh, are, are just some of them. Um, at one point, this organization had, I believe, 32 states in the Washington and Washington, D.C. as members, uh, that's that since dropped down to uh, 25 or 26. Um, and in statements after leaving, uh, leaders in these states have have pointed uh, saying that they're they're disappointed. The organization didn't make changes like making outreach to those uh, eligible but unregistered voters optional, uh, those sorts of things. But that has been a development of, of some of these states leaving. And what justification have they given for leaving? Yeah. So like I mentioned, uh, there was a, a board or kind of a meeting of, of the member states that are a part of ERIC in March, uh, where there were certain things uh, 
proposals to change how some things in the organization are run. Uh, like I mentioned, uh, currently, you know, states are required to to make an effort to reach out to those eligible but unregistered voters. That was that was a change some of these states wanted. Um, there was also a change uh, concern about ex officio board members that uh, were associated with the board but didn't have a vote um, that weren't from states. They were concerned about political influence there. Uh, they did get rid of the the ex officio board position, um, but the they voted to keep that that outreach to eligible but unregistered voters and that uh, that upset some of these states and they opted to pull out. So you spoke with State Election Board Secretary uh, Paul Zeriax for this story. What did he have to say about the possible pros and cons of joining the organization? So he told me that uh, he believes the organization uh, produces really good data. It can be helpful in that way. Um, but he said there there have been concerns just about the the cost of joining, the cost of doing that uh, outreach to voters that are eligible but unregistered voters that that is required under Eric. Um, so s- some of those costs concerns, and then um, some of the the provisions of of this bill that's going through the legislature that would uh, effectively bar Oklahoma from joining Eric. Um, certain data privacy uh, provisions he he believes are good sort of guardrails uh, in case the Oklahoma joins an organization and there there happens to be a leak. Um, so that that's those were kind of his thoughts there. Is there a viable alternative to Eric? It's been discussed forming one, but uh, as as of now there there hasn't been uh, an organization come up as as sort of an alternative or, or competitor to Eric. So if uh, Oklahoma is not part of that, uh, what are what's the state going to try to do to keep its own voter lists up to date? So uh, Secretary Zierix told me that, uh, you know, the state election board gets state health department reports monthly. Um, they send address confirmations to uh, registered voters that haven't voted in two general election cycles. Um, so that's, you know, maybe not as quick as going to Eric, but that's one, uh, thing they're trying to do there. Um, there's also a bill that was passed this session that would, uh, authorize the state to get, uh, social security death records from other states and, and match them against the roles. So, uh, if someone lives right on the border with Texas and they die at a hospital with Texas, uh, you might be more easily able to identify that. Um, but I think the whole, the whole goal of of this and the whole goal of Eric is just, you know, if you have your roles filled with people who aren't really eligible, while voter fraud is is really rare, the the odds of something happening there increase when uh, someone who's not really eligible lingers on there. Um, so that's that's what's going on in Oklahoma. All right. Well, thanks, Keaton. Uh, you can read Keaton's coverage of. Uh, Oklahoma's uh, opting out, at least for now, of the Electronic Registration Information Center, as well as all his other coverage of democracy on our website, oklahomawatch.org. While you're there, you can also sign up for Keaton's weekly newsletter, Democracy Watch. RA5 covers race and equity at Oklahoma Watch. Last week, 
Governor Smith signed a bill addressing child care scarcity that she wrote about previously. She's here to tell us more about what the new law will do and the state of child care access in Oklahoma. Now, Ari, you've been following this bill for a few months now. How did you first learn about it? So it all started when I started talking to some child care providers who own in-home facilities in Tulsa. They told me that even though some of them are licensed by the Department of Human Services to care for 12 kids, they're being limited to seven by a requirement in the local zoning code. And they were the ones that also told me about a bill that had been filed that would remove those local capacity limits statewide, streamlining them to the ones that DHS sets out. Now, did you talk to any of those providers after the bill was signed by the governor? Yeah, I talked to Jasmine Stewart, who runs a facility in North Tulsa. Um, She is licensed for 12 kids, but she currently only has 10. And when I first talked to her a few months ago, she was preparing to have to make a tough choice. She was either going to have to downsize to seven kids or request a special exemption from the city to care for more, but that would come with a couple hundred dollar fee. But now she doesn't have to make that decision. And she said the new law will provide her facility with stability and it will also give her the ability to grow eventually, which has been a long time goal. So uh, you're reporting, have you seen local governments uh, elsewhere around the state that have other requirements besides the capacity limits? Mm -hmm. Um, Well, it depends on the town. Um, Some towns only have the capacity limit and some towns don't have any extra requirements at all. Um, But in Tulsa's case, the... um, Zoning code says that employees have to live in the home that the child care is based in, and the code also includes some spacing and lot requirements that don't apply to residential homes. All right. How common are these in-home child care centers? Pretty prevalent across the state. During any given month in 2022, there were about 1,430 Oklahomans running child cares out of their homes. Um... Those child cares make up the bulk of Tulsa's total child cares. And one of the reasons why they're so important is because they're often the most affordable option, um, especially in the minority communities that they're often based in. They're really pillars of the community. Now, uh, isn't there, you know, also kind of an ongoing child care crisis across the state? What, what kind of challenges are people facing? Yeah. So half of the 77 counties in the state, including the two biggest ones, are considered child care deserts, meaning that the number of available child care spots in the area is less than the number of kids that live there. And even if a family does manage to get one of those spots, affordability is still often a challenge. Uh, Data from 2020 from a think tank shows that Putting a child, putting a baby through childcare for a year is almost a thousand dollars more than it would cost to put um, a student through in-state public college for a year. All right, how will this bill help with any of that? Yeah, so basically by maximizing the potential of these 
child cares that are already in place. Um, they're already being licensed by a state agency for a certain number of kids. And so letting them care for that number instead of a smaller number that their local government might have created created a limit for um, maximizes the number of spots and it also increases access. All right. What, what are the next steps here? So the law is set to take effect on November 1st, but Towns could also be going through their own processes for removing additional requirements. In the case of Tulsa, um, the local planning commission and the city council are considering recommendations that they remove some of those extra requirements that I mentioned earlier. And they're expected to come to a final decision in the next couple months or so. All right. Well, thanks, Ari. You can read uh, all of Ari's coverage of the new law affecting child care capacities for in-home child care and all of her other race and equity coverage by visiting our website, OklahomaWatch.org. Jennifer Palmer covers education for Oklahoma Watch. Her latest story takes us inside an Oklahoma City middle school classroom for a look at a new social studies curriculum. Jennifer, whose class did you visit? I spent a couple of hours uh, inside the classroom of Ms. Beatrice Mitchell. Um, she does teach social studies, um, eighth grade at FD Moon Middle School in Oklahoma City. And uh, can you set the scene for us a little bit? What did you see? Sure. A lot of excitement, actually. Uh, students were very engaged. They were um, sitting in tables of four each, um, working together on the assignment with their group of four. They were um, answering some questions and reading about Nat Turner on the day that I visited. Um, of course, he had led the... Um, only successful slave rebellion in 1831. So they were talking about slavery and and um, working together to answer some questions. Um, once they got their questions, they were ready to um, present to the class. And so each group of four would kind of um, take a quick vote and choose a speaker who would represent them, kind of a democratic type of process in order to, to decide who would represent them in front of the class. Oh, these can be difficult conversations these days, teaching slavery and uh, other weighty topics. How did Ms. Mitchell approach it? You know, Ms. Mitchell really let the students do a lot of the, um, the, the teaching, the discussion. She would, um, you know, kind of probe them a little bit with questions to get them on track. But for the most part, uh, the students were doing a lot of it on their own. It was very student-led. Is that part of this curriculum? It is. Uh, yeah, these uh, these lessons are set up to have the students, um, they're provided with like a primary source um, that could be, you know, a historical document or maybe a diary entry from a slave. They would read through that, discuss with each other. Um, it's really built in a way to facilitate these civil conversations in order to teach young people how to do that, how to have civil conversations about some, uh, you know, heavy topics. All right. Now, you watched this for a while. You're a longtime education reporter, also a parent of school age children. In your observation, how's it working? Well, um, you know, 
as far as I could tell, um, I asked Ms. Mitchell, she said uh, she's been teaching 13 years. Um, she said this is the most engaged class she's ever had. Um, in fact, she said in, in years past, she would um, kind of imitate, she would do voices of like George Washington to kind of keep the kids engaged and interested in what she was teaching. And, and she said this year, the content's so good, she hasn't really had to do that. Um, of course, it's too early to have any state test results or anything like that. Um, but she did point me to one data point. Um, her students all took the uh, citizenship test, which is a new requirement for high school. And in her class, every single student passed. Um, it's a six out of 10 questions correct to pass. All of her students got that this year. And um, across the district, the average was about 60% of eighth graders. So definitely exceeding um, the district average. Was uh, Ms. Mitchell concerned about our state's uh, so-called anti-critical race theory law? I mean, that was definitely on my mind when I started on the story. I was very interested to find out how, uh, you know, I mean, we've heard teachers are concerned about this. They're concerned about overstepping or, or making a student uncomfortable that might um, result in a complaint. Um, I asked Ms. Mitchell and she said, you know, I'm really not. Um, she has talked to the district about it and they have assured her that as long as she sticks to the standards, the state standards that are laid out for social studies, um, which she she does, um, then sh everything should be fine. Well, what about the district or iCivics? Yeah, I asked them both as well. Um, the district kind of echoed what Ms. Mitchell said. You know, all of their teachers teach curriculum that's aligned to the state standards. Um, their parents trust them to, you know, um, to stick to those standards and, and to teach what they're supposed to. And, and they really weren't worried about it either. Um, I asked iCivics, which is piloting this curriculum in three uh, states this year, um, Oklahoma, Colorado, and New Mexico in different districts. And uh, I was curious whether they had to adapt it to Oklahoma based on that law. And Again, they said no. Um, they did adapt the curriculum to fit in our state standards, but the law didn't really um, impact the way that they designed it at all. Oh, is that iCivics curriculum controversial in any way? You know, there have been some critics of it um, for a few reasons. One is they have a very strong tenant of, um, you know, equity. They want to ensure that every student across the country has access to high quality social studies curriculum. Uh, surprisingly, that can be construed as controversial. Um, uh, I think partly because equity is the E in DEI and that's become, you know, one of the latest um, talking points for some folks. Um, but for the most part, this curriculum started off as um, games and is used by, you know, millions of students who play these games that teach different uh, civics concepts and, um, you know, the Constitution and Bill of Rights and things like that. All right. So what happens next? Um, you know, I think they're going to expand the pilot. I think they're going to um, probably d teach it in more schools in Oklahoma City first. That's their plan anyway. Um, they've also got uh, iCivics has some grant funding to uh, do some studies on how well it's working. So if it's working really well, I think they will continue to, uh, 
you know, branch out into other schools. All right. Well, thanks, Jennifer. You can read all of Jennifer's uh, coverage about uh, the new social studies curriculum being tested and her experience watching that in action in the classroom, as well as all her other education coverage at OklahomaWatch.org, where you can also sign up for her free weekly newsletter, Education Watch. You've been listening to Long Story Short, a weekly podcast that helps you get deeper into the investigative stories reported by Oklahoma Watch, which you can find on the web at oklahomawatch.org. This episode was recorded at the AT&T Podcast Studio. For Oklahoma Watch, I'm Ted Struley. Thanks for listening.